The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Virginia Ferris. And I am your advocate host, Laura Sinclair. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. So, Laura, today we are venturing into something that for once, for once in the like 50 some episodes of this podcast, I actually know something about. And we are very excited because we are going to be joined by a really talented, smart guest. And I know I'm going to learn a lot today because I don't know much about this topic. And I can't wait to see the conversation between two smart women. Yes, uh, Rebecca Herbig, my supervisor and the manager of the Institutional Rights Unit, is going to be telling us all about what the Institutional Rights Unit at DLCB does, um, what we can help folks with, and how they can request help. But before we jump into that, let's check out disability in the news. Nike recently introduced a brand new sneaker, the GoFly Ease a sneaker that can be taken on and off completely hands-free. The shoe has a design similar to a large rubber band that allows the shoe to open smoothly and close, remaining secure in both positions. This is just the latest design in the Fly East collection, an adaptable line created by Nike in 2015 after a teenager with cerebral palsy reached out to Nike because he wanted to be able to independently put his shoes on. Currently, the shoe is only available to Nike members by invitation, but will be broadly available later this year. Okay, so we got a special treat for you guys today. Um, We have the fabulous Rebecca Herbig Esquire, uh, who we all call Becca. She is the manager of DLCB's Institutional Rights Unit and a staff attorney, and she is um, my personal supervisor, who I have had uh, the pleasure of working with for a couple of years. Welcome, Becca. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with y'all today. Thank you so much, Becca. We are so glad to have a conversation with you and to share with our listeners uh, another facet of what we do here at the Disability Law Center of Virginia. So welcome, thank you, and we would love to just dive right in and talk a little bit about what the Institutional Rights Unit is uh, and why folks might be interested in the work that we do there. Sure. So we have a number of different uh, units here that where we sort of separate our work out into segments where we can specialize. So the institutional rights unit is a unit that focuses on assisting and providing services for adults with disabilities who are in what we would consider a 
facility or an institutional placement? So that, I mean, that term is pretty broad, like um, so, sort of for our purposes, how are you defining facility or institution? That's a great question, actually. So we will focus on a number of different facilities. So for example, there's state-operated psychiatric hospitals. For example, I'm sure some of you may have heard of Eastern State Hospital or Central State Hospital. Those are facilities that fall under our umbrella here at DLCV. Also, there's one state-operated training center, which is Southeast Virginia Training Center in Chesapeake, and we have we monitor there as well. The other types of facilities are state licensed nursing homes, state licensed assisted living facilities, state licensed ICF IIDs, and we also help with people who are in private treatment facilities and in jail or prison. So Becca, you just mentioned a lot of different places that um, can offer services that maybe are paid for by the state or that might be run by the state of Virginia. Do we work with other organizations or other parts of the government in, you know, to coordinate these efforts, you know, so, or with them or sometimes challenged by them? Maybe you can tell us a bit about um, our involvement with the state, how these things are run. Sure. So the state-operated psychiatric hospitals and the state-operated training center, the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services are the ones that is the agency that actually operates those 11 different facilities in Virginia. Training centers are institutional placements for individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. We actually used to have five here in Virginia, but we only have one now. Remind me later and we can talk about that. Um, DBHDS, which is what we what is short for Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, also um, licenses different types of placements throughout the, the state, and that includes any intensive care facilities for individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And so we work with DBHDS a lot. It is a pretty collaborative experience. We have a lot of contact with the directors at each of these different 11 facilities. And we're routinely in these facilities physically to talk with residents and staff and kind of look into different things. But the Department of Behavioral Health doesn't license all of the facilities that we do work with. So you also have the Virginia Department of Health who handles services related to nursing homes, private hospitals, and also some of the medical services that somebody would receive if they were an inmate in jail or prison. And then we also work with the Department of Social Services. That department operates or licenses, I'm sorry, the assisted living facilities throughout Virginia. So we've got three main agencies that are state agencies that we work with regularly. And just, you know, to jump in, provide some additional context when we're talking about like licensing agencies. Um, if you are somebody who is living in a place that has staff and in a place where like you have roommates or housemates or facility mates and you don't know if the place you're living is licensed but you are a person with a disability, you can still call DLCV. We will sort out like, 
what kind of what kind of place you're at because it's not totally clear you might have a facility that some people call a group home and some people call it an assisted living facility and some people call it a nursing home just because people are used to referring to it in different ways and you know that's just the complex system of virginia that's absolutely right virginia i appreciate you adding that in <laughs> yeah, I think what Virginia just said to clarify really speaks to you know the type of work that we do or situations people might be in that can be a little confusing. You know, we have a lot of different terms that we use and you know that's because you practice law and we really try to stay by guidances and rules, but that can be a little fuzzy to someone who might be unsure of what their rights are or or what we might be able to do. So the work that we do um what are some examples of the type of things that we've done or you know what does it really mean on the ground to see what we do to help people that's a really good question laura and in fact it takes us back to the original history of why the protection and advocacy system was created and the from the beginning of the protection and advocacy system the main focus was on conducting abuse and neglect investigations in adult institutions and probably as well children's institutions, but we focus um, our unit just on the adult side. So we see the this work as the core activity of what DLCB does. Now, our unit's not the only one that does abuse and neglect investigations. We have a communities unit, we have a children's unit. They both do that as well. So the whole agency, we do a lot of investigations into abuse and neglect really two different types of investigations that we can do. We can do a primary investigation and look into records and things ourselves, or we can do what's called a secondary investigation, which means that we get a report from someone else that has already kind of done the incident report and an investigation into it. So like a nursing facility investigated somebody's complaint. And if we are taking a look at whether that facility did a good job in their investigation, that's called a secondary investigation. So, all right, so if we talk about what it really means to do an abuse and neglect investigation or what it really means to do human rights uh, work. So, for example, I mentioned that we do work in jails and prisons. This year, uh, the Disability Law Center of Virginia is actually monitoring two different jails in the state of Virginia and we are able to do investigations there as well. So an example would be, let's say an inmate died from something that was related to a disability that they had at a jail, we would be permitted to go in and do an investigation of that. Some other, in, some other examples of what we do, the DBHDS uh, facilities actually are required to do certain types of critical incident reporting so as an agency, we review all the critical incidents that come in and we seek corrective action whenever there are problems with that as well. And that critical incident review that we do, actually we have a meeting every week with Colleen Miller, the executive director, to go over this because this is something that Colleen believes is really important and core at what we are supposed to be doing as an agency. We're also able to help people with discharge rights and discharge planning. So especially if you're in a, a DBHDS operated facility, we do a lot of work to get people from the state psychiatric hospitals into a community setting 
or whatever the, the least restrictive setting would be that would be appropriate for them. And those types of cases can take a long time. You know, some of this work we can do quickly and easily, and some of it just takes a lot. And the discharge right is something that tends to take a lot of time, but we're really proud when we have stories of individuals who, for example, have been in a state hospital for a couple of years and are now finally able to return to the community and have a lot of their rights given back to them. It's a really um, important and special time in the lives of our clients. And for that reason, it's a really important and special time in the lives of our advocates and attorneys too, because we see this as, you know, our passion that we're trying to assist with making sure that more people are in community settings than institutional ones. But that's not all we do because we can come out and do all these things, but we also develop things like fact sheets or videos or say this podcast to tell other people about the work that we do. And we also go to all the facilities we talked about you with and we do different types of trainings. Usually those trainings are, are related to topics that are really hot at the time or certain issues that we have seen as being systemic across different providers. Uh, but unfortunately, our ability to do that has been lessened because of COVID in the last 10 months. So Becca, previously you mentioned the training centers. Do you wanna give our listeners um, do you want to bring that back around and sort of give our listeners an idea of what we have done, what we are doing about the training centers that did exist and the one that still does? Yeah, so this part is a little confusing. So I'm going to try and go slow. Um, but it's, I think, very important because it tells you a lot about the state of Virginia. It tells you a lot about what the law out there requires. And it tells you a lot about what DLCV has been doing over the past 10 years or so. So in 2011, the Department of Justice raised concerns with the state of Virginia about what has been called the Olmstead Doctrine. So Olmstead was actually a case that was heard from the Supreme Court of the United States, and it dealt with two women in Georgia who had mental illness and developmental disabilities. These ladies had been admitted to a state-run hospital for treatment. After their treatment, however, Georgia failed to discharge these ladies back to the community, despite the fact that there were mental health professionals who had expressed an expert opinion that the community was the appropriate placement for those individuals. So each of these ladies spent a couple of years actually in the state hospitals that they were in, and then they decided to sue the state. The Supreme Court, once it worked its way up all the way to the United States Supreme Court, the court held that states have to provide community-based services to people with disabilities who want to live in the community if those options are available in the community. That's really important because what we're saying is that all people should live in that placement that is the least restrictive one for their rights. If there's a placement where someone would be well taken care of, but they have the right to do all the things that you and I take for granted every day, voting or driving 
or other types of rights that get actually cut off often when you are in some of these facilities or when you end up getting somebody appointed to make your decisions for you. So it's really important to make this point that the community settings are preferred settings if someone is able to be cared for in the community and that the Supreme Court agrees with that. The reason the Supreme Court said that they were looking at community placements is because they're really concerned about what the stigma is around different types of disabilities and especially mental health disabilities. There's a, a stigma and these facilities really severely diminish the ability of people to do the everyday activities of their life, including working, getting economic independence, getting educational advancement, cultural enrichment, going to your local church, having time with your family who supports you, and then any other social contact that you have in the community. So that talks about what Georgia, what happened in Georgia, but let's get back to Virginia. So the Department of Justice alleged after a three-year investigation that Virginia was violating the same rights that Georgia did because these two women should have been in community placements. So Virginia created a settlement with the Department of Justice and so that the full lawsuit did not have to go forward. And that settlement has been working itself out over the last couple of years. What Virginia decided to do was close four of the five training centers that it had open in an attempt to get individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities back into the community. Um, so the one remaining facility is a facility that we cover, that Southeastern Virginia Training Center and the I Institutional Rights Unit. And there are also lots and lots of group homes in the community that are also covered by DLCV, but they're covered by the communities unit. The, I, I would say that the, the, the exception to, um, so, so all of the training centers except for Southeastern are closed. There are still what are called uh, ICFDDs, intermediate care facilities, for individuals with developmental disabilities. Um, those are a little bit more intense than group homes. There's some of them in the community. There's not a whole lot um, in the institutions unit. We do tend to cover those. Um, but, you know, like we said before, if you're trying to figure out, do you live in a group home or do you live in an ICF? You don't really have to figure that out. Just call DLCV and we will sort that out. Exactly, that's right. Now, you mentioned, Becca, that one of the aims of DLCV's work is to help people be in, integrated into the community and in least restrictive environments so they could do all those things like spend time with family, go to school, get a job or socialize. And all of those things sound like human rights that we feel that people are entitled to. So you already touched on some of the human connection rights that we might need or resources, but could you tell us a little bit more about what human rights are, why that's relevant to your work, and then what are some examples so folks might uh, see what that looks like uh, when we actually exercise this work? Good question. So the answer depends on the facility you're in and who licenses it as to exactly what laws will apply to it and what regulations will apply. 
So when we're talking about the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services, they actually have promulgated, that's a big word for they just made some regulations uh, that actually relate to their facilities. And they call those the human rights regulations. It's a whole section of regulations that provide people with a way to make a complaint in their facilities, with a way for the facilities to investigate that complaint and respond back to the individual. If the individual disagrees with the director's decision, then there's methods for appealing that and having actual community members with lived experience make the decision whether your human rights have been violated. Everybody has certain human rights, and we think of those as things like the right to be treated with dignity as a human being, the right to be free from abuse and neglect, the right to be treated, as we've talked about, under the least restrictive conditions, and the right, and this is something that comes up a lot for the work that we do, the right to be free of unnecessary physical restraint. So, it's kind of all the things that you and I can think of that we do every day that enriches our lives. So if we're allowed to go participate in a holiday event in the community, and it boosts our mood, let's say, because we're able to get some of the religion support that we you know, may have, and we're able to get some of our friends to be around us, which I know is really hard right now with COVID, but those are your human rights. Those are the things that because you're a human being, you're entitled to talk with other people. You're entitled to celebrate with other people. You're entitled to gather. I mean, that's our whole First Amendment right is, right? We have rights that allow us to gather with other people and have free speech. So human rights is a really, really broad category. There will be human rights that you are required to have as well in the state uh, nursing homes and in the assisted living facilities, but they're a little bit different. They're not set up like the Office of Human Rights for the Department of Behavioral Health has set it up. Becca, thank you for explaining that the way you did, because a lot of us either have to uh, stick with COVID restrictions or we're choosing to, to really try to support our community. And that means that a lot of us are experiencing what it's like to be stuck at home or not be able to go places that we want to or see people that we love to spend time with. So I can't imagine how difficult or painful it must be for people who don't ever have any choice when we're just getting a little taste of that, but there are other people who don't even get to make decisions to choose safety for themselves. That must be really awful. That's actually a really great point, Laura. You know, we all at least so far, me and most of the people that I talk with, we do on a regular daily basis now kind of complain, well, oh, if COVID wasn't here, I could go out and play in my poker game tonight, or I could go out and meet some friends for dinner at our favorite restaurant. And we're not able to do those things right now. So it does give us kind of an idea of what it would be like to never be able to do those things. And the scary part is that we know individuals who are not able to access their communities and who are not able to access their community support individuals actually have worse outcomes as far as both mental health and other types of disabilities. So that's another reason that it's really important for us to make sure that residents of these facilities are getting out as much as they can and having as many of their rights attended to 
because now we all know what it feels like to not be able to make the choices that we otherwise would be able to. So we're talking a lot about rights. Um, and I know that we can't really touch on every different system's specific human rights complaint processes or, you know, specific um, ways to get their rights enforced. But, you know, at least when we are talking about any individual who's receiving services for um, a mental illness, a developmental disability, or substance abuse, all of that comes back to the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services human rights regulations. Um, if folks out there are in one of these programs and they want to um, and they want to enforce their rights, um, can you talk a little bit about how those rights protect them and how they can enforce their rights? Absolutely. So the regulations, the human rights regulations that we talked about set up the framework that would allow all of the residents that receive services at those providers to make complaints and be afforded what you've probably heard of before, which is be afforded due process. What that really means is that you're making sure that the individual making the complaint actually has the right to be heard. And they have enough of a right to be heard that it, it, it becomes a fair situation. Especially when you think about this, it's because you've got facilities that are run by and have you know, up to 100, 200, 300 staff, maybe. And then you've got less residents than that. And the residents generally are not as knowledgeable about their rights as the providers are. So it kind of evens the playing field by making sure that people who may not have as much information about how to deal with complaints actually get all of that. So at each of the state hospitals that I talked about, and as well at the training center that are operated by the state, there are human rights advocates assigned there. That person does not work for the actual facility, but they do work for the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services Office of Human Rights. It is their job to take complaints as related to abuse and neglect from facility residents and process them through the human rights complaint process. So the first thing they actually would have to do is somebody would make a complaint, right? to the provider. Sometimes that can happen uh, if a resident just walks up to somebody on their, their unit and says, hey, do you have a form where I can fill out my complaint? Sometimes they call us and ask how that happens and we're able to help explain the process to them. And in a couple of instances when we believe it's a systemic issue, we may actually help them with the complaint and then represent them at any of the further hearings that are had. So the first thing that happens is a resident makes a complaint to the service provider. And that can be done through anybody that works with the service provider. After that, the facility is required to conduct an investigation and the director is required to come back and say whether the complaint made is valid or not. Usually they'll say founded or unfounded. If the complaint is unfounded and the resident disagrees, and believes that it was a human rights uh, uh, violation, then the resident can appeal that to what's called the Local Human Rights Committee. There are committees all around Virginia that handle and process these complaints, 
that are staffed by community members. So generally they're members who either have their own lived experience with mental illness or they are a provider of services for mental illness. And it's very interesting because you get a wide range of individuals that run those. And they'll actually be the one that makes the decision whether the, whether the facility abused or neglected. And I do just wanna point out there actually is one more step of appeal as well. So if you get to the local human rights committee and you're still not happy with their decision, you actually can appeal that to the state human rights committee. And that's the last committee you can appeal to. Their answer is final. So this is a lot of different process to go through. And it sounds like there can be a lot of barriers in the way. And that means barriers to people understanding how to get the help they need or access the help that they need. And then maybe even barriers when you go to some of these committees or organizations to try to advocate for people who need that help. So what are some things that you wish that people knew, that you wish that people that, you know, that really jumps in, out to you as helpful information or helpful understanding, either people who call in or, or might not be sure if they should call in or the providers who are trying to help them help people have the rights they need or even the Human Rights Council. What jumps out to you is really helpful. There are times where the Disability Law Center of Virginia is actually able to help people with those appeals because we have seen that it appears that this system is not very accessible. We get a lot of reports from individuals that they don't have any idea how to make a complaint. We get a lot of reports from individuals that they made a complaint, but they never heard back about it at all. And so that first part of the process, we see a lot of barriers there. And we've really been working to try and figure out why that is. And I do think that it's different reasons in some of in in different facilities sometimes. I do think that staff are not always well versed in what they're required to do with a complaint. So somebody could make a complaint to a staff on their unit and then that staff doesn't pass it on like it's supposed to. That's making the system itself inaccessible. I also think that people so when you think about the fact that there's a human rights advocate at each facility, that's one person responding to what may be 160 different residents who some may have more than one human rights complaint. So it actually is a high volume of work. Uh, and so the human rights advocates are supposed to be able to help you throughout the whole process. If you wanted them to, they could represent you in any of these hearings. But what we find is that they very rarely do. So while the human rights advocates tend to talk with someone when they first have a complaint, might talk with a treatment team or someone there at the facility to see what could be done about it, it's not really being processed pursuant to what the regulations require. And so we have actually been bringing a number of complaints against different hospitals who this seems to be happening with. We have one particular hospital that we it, this seems to happen at more often than others. And we have been developing a strategy to handle that, which includes representing more people in these human rights allegations. I hope that got to what you were trying to ask, Laura. Yeah, I think that um, most of the time, like if you call DLCV for an issue that could be handled by a human rights advocate, we're probably gonna tell you to call your human rights advocate first but, you know, if 
you have been trying to do that and you haven't been able to get in touch with someone or if the human rights advocate wasn't able to help you with an issue or even if it's something that the hospital said that they were going to resolve for you and then didn't um you know potentially those are the points at which dlcv can step in and assist with um those human rights issues particularly at um state hospitals and dvhds license programs um so with that in mind um becca do you want to talk about other stuff that the uh institutional rights unit handles other than just just hammering home those complaints so in addition to the human rights complaints that we deal with people i mean you have other rights that are available to you because the law says they're available they're called your legal rights and when people have some complaints about non-DVHDS facilities, there's still plenty of work that a DLCV advocate or attorney could do. Um, we can take on case representation to help people enforce their, their resident rights. Let's, for example, somebody's in a nursing and rehab center, they fall on some water that was on the floor and they had a, they ended up injuring their hip or fracturing their hip. This actually happens quite often uh, and what we would be able to do is advocate for some corrective action let's say we found out that that liquid was on the floor for two hours and then somebody slipped in it we certainly can work with the facility on what their protocols are for cleaning up things like that to make sure that in the future nothing sits on the floor for that long so that actually gives us a lot of wiggle room with the different facilities that we're working with we really can jump in there and deal with almost anything that you have a complaint about. I will say we don't have the resources to be able to help everybody. And so that's something important we'll come back to a little later. But it kind of shows that if you're not really careful and mindful of, you know, taking care of people who need help or maybe can't clean that puddle up or can't see that puddle, that that's where problems can go down, even just through not really paying careful attention to those kinds of details that really can impact people. That's right. And, I, you know, we do see often as well that sometimes these types of things happen because the facility is not staffed adequately. So, you know, if you don't have enough staff on the floor to see what's going on, or you don't have somebody who can come in and clean it up because you're low on staff, that absolutely can impact whether people are receiving their services that they're entitled to. And it's hard, you know, and every provider probably somewhere is missing something. You know, there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of regulations, and they're all really important. But, you know, it, it does, it, we, we do get a real concern when we hear that these facilities are not adequately staffed. Because let's say you're talking about a nursing home, you may be talking about a lot of individuals that require transfers. And if you don't have enough staff to be able to transfer those individuals, and there's a lot of things that aren't gonna happen in a nursing home. For example, if somebody has any pressure ulcers, they're not necessarily going to be flipped as many times as they're supposed to throughout the day. Or other people who need to get their movement in so that they can continue to do things like walk and stuff like that may not have the ability to do that. So I appreciate that connection, Laura. So um, let's talk about systemic issues. Um, 
some ones that you sort of touched on that, you know, are at least near and dear to my heart as somebody who does this a lot. Um, you know, there's issues of seclusion and restraint, there's medication over objection, there's visitation. Um, why do, seclusion restraint is such a big one and something that we get so many calls about. Can you talk a little bit about what we do with that? Sure. So there are instances where a provider is allowed to either isolate a resident in an empty room, which we call seclusion, or restrain the individual's physical freedom. So that's kind of what you hear about. You probably have heard about this somewhat having to do with schools, that sometimes there's restraint and seclusion. And in all of the facilities that we cover, this type of thing can happen as well, because there are instances where someone poses an emergent threat to everybody that's around them. And they, their freedom may need to be limited, their freedom of movement, in order to make it safe. But it's really important to be clear here. They are all, providers are only allowed to seclude or restrain you in response to an emergency. If there is not an emergency happening, they do not have the ability to do that. Um, but I do want to say that if any provider tells you that you are being secluded or restrained, whether that restraint is by physical, someone putting their hands on you, sitting in what's called an emergency restraint chair, or even being given medication to restrain you, they are not permitted to do that for treatment purposes. So if you ever hear that, please feel welcome to call DLCV and let us know. And we would like to help you with either some information or referral or maybe some case representation. We would specifically like to march upon that treatment provider with torches and pitchforks. <laughs> no, that's our, that's our um, uh, Beauty and the Beast moment. <laughs> Right. That's what we call case level services. <laughs> Becca, you have given some examples of some pretty awful things that can happen to people and that they are just not okay. I bet that our work is really important because a lot of people who are in institutional settings might not have a voice for themselves that the rest of us enjoy. Like I can imagine if, you know, I were in one of these settings and I wanted to complain about a staff member, a staff member could just say that I was making it up. So it sounds like we do a lot of work to try to really listen to people and make sure that that voice gets through and really look into the situation so that the trust is given to people who call in too. That's absolutely right. I think that's a really, really good point to make. And another thing that's really important is that in all circumstances, it's not necessary in all circumstances, right, for DLCV to get involved. But sometimes what's most helpful is to let the individual know what their rights are give them ways to follow the process themselves, and that helps give them their own voice. So with some clients who we think would do well with self-advocacy, we may just provide uh, some resources or give some suggestions, things like that. And that actually is a top goal because it's really important that in exercising their own rights, someone being able to have their voice heard is really important. And when it's their actual voice, it's even better than when it's our voice speaking up for them. But sometimes people don't have the ability to speak up for themselves, and you're right. 
that's when DLCB is able to come in and provide information that honestly most people just don't know what their rights are. Okay, Becca. So um, we've talked about systemic issues. We've talked about human rights. We've talked about the range of services that DLCV provides. Um, if folks want to know more or if they want to um, get our help, um, what are ways that they can do that? So every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we have an individual doing intakes for us. So you can call us on any Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The phone number is 1-800-552-3962. And you'll be able to speak with our intake specialist who will route you to who we consider the subject matter expert in our office on the issue that you're calling about. And that's great because that means that any information you're going to receive is coming from somebody who this is within their expertise. In addition, you can visit our website anytime at www.dlcv.org. And there are actually a lot of different types of information on there about you or your loved one's legal rights, including fact sheets. There are some projects and work that we're doing this year where we're collecting stories of different individuals to support some of our work. And so we would love for you to visit our website and become familiar with it as well. Y'all are great. Okay, you make things so much easier. You're killing it, Becca. You have so much information and we managed to knock out so much in this hour. That's yeah. all right. Good. Whew. You did good boss. And now a DLCV highlight. Our representative payee review team recently conducted a routine interview with the family of a social security beneficiary. While the family had no complaints about their loved one's payee when it came to handling money, they had a lot of concerns about the care the beneficiary was receiving at the payee's facility. Our team was able to work with the family to get them the information they needed to report their concerns to the state. The family was grateful not only to share their experiences, but to make sure the facility was held accountable. Thank you so much to Becca Herbig, our very talented staff attorney and the head of our institutional rights unit. I think it is safe to say that this episode was chock-a-block with useful information that helps us to understand a little bit more about what people go through when they don't have access to the same kinds of rights and the voice that we're used to. And I really appreciate learning from both of you so much about the work that we do and the people we try to serve. Yeah, it, uh, the idea of living in an institution is something that is so foreign to most people. I know that before I started at DLCV, I just had no concept of the things that, you know, thousands and thousands of Virginians are going through every day and no idea that, you know, certain issues even were issues. So hopefully we've shed some light on that for our listeners. Well, thank you, Laura, and thank you to you all at home for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We are available, as always, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share us with everybody you know. 
And if you need assistance, want more information about DLCV, what we do, or even just what we talked about, visit us online at dlcv.org. Follow us on Twitter at Disability Law VA. We are also on Facebook at the Disability Law Center of Virginia. And like I said, share us with everybody you know. Until next time, I'm Laura Sinclair. And I'm Virginia Ferris. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now.